Thank you for downloading our podcast. We are tempted to pursue a more tangible religion. We can fall into a trap and think we need more than Christ. But Hebrews assures us that Christ is all we need. Join us as we study Hebrews to learn more about the great Melchizedekian priest who presides in heaven. When we look at this section in Hebrews, the question I pose is why suffer? And I want you to imagine an Old Testament situation, just something that went through my mind as I was working through these verses of what it must have been like to be Elijah on Mount Carmel. And you go back and you read that story in 1 Kings 18 that I will very briefly summarize, I promise. That as you go through this story and you notice that there's a battle of gods. You have Baal, Asherah, which is basically Baal's mommy as She's presented, it's intended to sort of mock her, if you will, and to mock Baal, that he's a little mommy's boy and she's a mommy. And as you have this narrative set up, we we can try and make light of it as Christians, but when you look at the numbers against Elijah, there were 850 prophets going against the one prophet, Elijah. Now, I don't know about you and it's one of those things where you think, well, this is Elijah showing he's a tough guy. I, I think we see Elijah's humanness in, in the midst of this because within a chapter, he's in a cave crying to God for him to take his life. I'm not saying I'm any stronger or any better. But you look at this and there's 850 prophets against the one. And these prophets in the challenge end up cutting themselves, calling attention to Asherah and Baal, because after all, it hasn't rained for three years. And what does Elijah do? It's in the midst of a drought. He pours water over the altar, fills a trough. I mean, can you understand how offensive that is? You haven't had rain for three years, and this guy is squandering water. And yet, with one prayer... From Elijah the prophet, one prayer, the Lord answers and fire consumes the altar and all the water around the altar and leaves a divot. The prophets of Baal and Asher are then executed at the command of Elijah. And you think about that narrative, how it's just a prayer of a man that penetrates into heaven, that changes the course of Israel's orientation then all these prophets are destroyed. All the followers of Baal are destroyed. These are fellow Israelites, fellow kinsmen, fellow countrymen in Elijah's time. And so we might wonder, well, what does this story fundamentally have to do with Hebrews and what does it fundamentally have to do with us? Well, going through this, we see how the Lord sets a precedence. He gives a serious warning. Secondly, we find uh, that there's a precedent we see within the congregation or who they are or or what what the Lord intends and what he desires and what he has done. And lastly, he ends with, with the encouragement of what he has seen with the lives of the saints. And so let's begin with God's precedence that we find uh, here in this narrative. That we have this Reminder, as I said in in verse 26, of this warning of deliberately sinning. In fact, in the Hebrew, uh, or in the Greek, excuse me, the 
way that the sentence is constructed is that deliberately sinning starts the sentence. That it's emphasizing the offense of this. And that's where I thought Mount Carmel is something that's rather uh, enlightening in terms of this because there is a clear battle line that's drawn. We follow Baal, we follow Yahweh. And it's a clear challenge that's going on. And this is what Hebrews is reminding the church that he's saying there's a warning about deliberately sinning against God. And we say, well, how, how bad is that? Well, where does it end? It ends with the day drawing near, our desire to live <laughs> in light of it. The warning that there are those who have fallen away, uh, those who are no longer meeting together, and that's call for us to meet together, to understand we worship the one God as his redeemed. But we find also that there's the expectation in 9 verse 28 that as Christ is the one who has offered one time for sin, made that one time offering, there's a call for us to eagerly wait for Christ to return. So this is giving us insight about really the essence of apostasy. I mean, uh, apostasy, obviously, you can live in sin, you can turn against Christ. But, but the real reason why we would pursue our sin or see our sin as more enjoyable than God is because we don't see a joy in serving Christ. And that's really where the author of Hebrews is just cutting right to the heart of it and saying, listen, we need to eagerly wait for our Savior to come again. We need to continue to fight against the flesh. We need to continue to conform to Christ. We need to have our orientation focus in the land of Canaan like Israel as they wander the wilderness. But he's picking up here in verse 26 with this deliberately sinning with what he has already laid out for us in chapter uh, 6. The warning in chapter 6 that we find in 3 through 7 of apostatizing from the gospel. So in chapter 6, the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, you continue on this course, you're going to be brought to a place where you're no longer renewed to repentance. And we say, well, what, what, what course? What's the problem? Well, he goes on in chapter 7 through 9, uh, all the way basically through 10 verse 18, laying out the significance and superiority of Christ. So now he's returning back to that and saying, listen, you deny the significance of Christ, you have nothing. Be careful. Denying the significance of Christ leads to death. And so we say, well, then what, what is this willingly sinning? What, what have we done that, or potentially done that, that can lead us to a place where we are those who, who no longer have life. Well, notice what he tells us in verse 26. He, he lays us out. After receiving the knowledge and the truth. So this is identifying something that's specific. The knowledge, the truth. So when you hear this, the author of Hebrews is saying, you can know the certainty of your redemption. The word of God is clear. Now, certainly there are those who are going to be the critics of the Word of God and those who are the liberals who challenge the Word of God and point out little places where the Scriptures may contradict themselves and say, see, it's not reliable. But in terms of the wholeness of the Word of God, we know who Christ is. This is why Christ is so upset at his disciples. This is why Christ is offended on the road to Emmaus. He says, have you not read the Old Testament? 
Did you not hear of the predictions of the Messiah? You didn't know that that truth is presented there. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, we know this knowledge. We know this truth. We know that life is only found in the Son of God, the great Melchizedekian priest. Apart from him, we have nothing. That's what verse 26 is telling us. If you say, I don't need Christ, or I pursue my sin, or I trust in this, or I trust in that, there is no longer a sacrifice for sins. Do you understand how somber that statement is? Saying there is no longer a sacrifice for sins. It means you stand before Christ on the day of judgment on your own merits. Based upon Adam, his failing, and your failing. How do you think you're going to fare? That's what the author of Hebrews is inviting us to think about. If we start exploring, and the other of you are saying, fine, let's, let's explore the alternative. Let's say that there is no Christ. Okay, what's the consequence of that? You want to stand before God? Like the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Asherah, willingly sinning, saying, I don't need Christ, I don't need him. That doesn't end well. But he says then in verse 27, which again drove home that, that concept of the fury of God. And how there's also a comfort in his fury in a strange way in that uh, event of the battle of the gods. But he says in verse 27, this fearful expectation of judgment, the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. I mean, you can see how the Lord works, Sodom and Gomorrah. You can find these precedents that are set in Scripture. When you think about that battle of Mount Carmel, about how the fire consumes the altar, and you see the fury of God, the, the sheer humiliation of that, of trying to challenge such a God. That's what the author of Hebrews is inviting us to contemplate. Do you think you're going to win? Do you think you're going to take up arms? You think you're going to teach this God and tell him how things are? The author of Hebrews is saying, don't play that game. It never ends well. We see that in Mount Carmel. We see that even with Sinai when Israel's assembled around the mountain. They're terrified and told not to even touch the mountain. See, the author of Hebrews is saying, don't dabble with this God. Don't challenge him. Don't see if, if somehow you can get an, an edge on him. You will not win. Now he appeals then to the reality of what has gone before in verse 28. Because now he's saying, fine, you see Moses as being authoritative. You want the priesthood. You see this as authoritative. He says, let's think back to the administration of Moses. And he's appealing here to what we find in a court case, Deuteronomy 17.6, uh, Deuteronomy 13, uh, verse 8 as well, is brought together. That in this court case, when an individual would pursue other gods, by the testimony of two or three witnesses, they would be hauled before the community. And in the midst of the community... Uh, they are those who, who would be executed and stoned publicly and, and they would die by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And we find that there's a command in Deuteronomy 13.8 that they die without mercy. That as a countryman execute the individual who brings in these false gods, they're not to have compassion. Think about that. 
And you think even in Mount Carmel, Elijah giving the command, execute the prophets, execute those who are the false prophets and followers of Baal. A scary thing. But that's what the author of Hebrews is calling to our attention. If this happens under the precedence of the administration of Moses, how much more under Christ? He's saying, don't mess with this God. This is where I believe in verses uh, 29 uh, through uh, basically around 37, he's applying this standard or this precedent. And so notice then what he goes on to say, that we have this provision where, where we understand that we have this former days and, and what's going on with these individuals and, and the failures of what was happening and how there's going to be worse punishment that goes on. That the one who tramples, the one who makes an accusation against the living God. And it's how much more, right? So he's moving from the lesser to the greater. We have a precedent of Moses. How much more under this administration now? And it's how much more is important because even in, in the Mosaic order in Deuteronomy 19.16, there's a provision that there may be false uh, witnesses that will come forward and try and uh, falsely execute people within the community or whatever uh, could go on. Well, that provision is basically, hey, you know, if whatever that individual is bringing accusations, uh, whatever accusation or punishment they're seeking, that punishment comes against a false witness. So it recalls for us that, that the Mosaic order, God's working in the context of his sinful order. It's not perfect. Uh, justice isn't perfectly administered. It's important to remember that because now when we move to the how much more in verse 29, how much worse punishment, right here it's a moment of pause again saying, do I really want to deliberately pursue my sin? Do I want to deliberately rebel against God? Because under the Mosaic order, it's imperfect. There's, there's uh, things that happen that aren't always right. But there's a greater consequence now. Then we have this uh, presentation of who we are. That there's this consciousness of transgression, of this worst punishment. The one who tramples underfoot. The one who basically is consciously violating the boundaries of, of God's order. One who is doing what is wrong, consciously, willfully denying Christ. But he provides these specific charges for us that we have to understand. That we have these charges that uh, we have the ones who have treated the Son of God in a certain way. Uh, that we are those who have trampled him underfoot the Son of God. Uh, so this is saying basically we're treating the Son of God with hatred, verse 29. He goes on, we deny the power of Christ's blood, verse 29. Uh, so again, you start thinking about this blood that has sanctified Christ, sanctified the heavenly arena. Uh, verse 29 is reminding us that, that the whole heavenly glory. Start saying, well, the blood of Christ isn't really that important. Well, it is important. It's a charge that's brought against the individuals. But lastly, what helps us understand in chapter 6 of not being renewed unto repentance. We have the ultimate offense. Then we have here the mocking of the spirit of grace. Verse 29. Implication here, this could very much be the unpardonable sin of accusing the Holy Spirit of lying or accusing the Holy Spirit of false witness. 
So the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, we keep going down this road in this trajectory. It's not going to end well. Because they may say, well, what's the ultimate consequence of this? I mean, what, what really happens? Well, he said, what does the Lord say? And he recalls for us again something from Moses, the song of Moses from Deuteronomy 32, uh, 35, and 36. If you're familiar with the context of this, this is where Moses is giving his last farewell speech to Israel. Deuteronomy, second giving of the law, going on into chapter 32. He's laying out how Israel is going to perform. It's not good. And as Israel's not going to perform well, the Lord reminds them, vengeance is mine. And the author of Hebrews is reminding the church that just because we claim to have a certain covenantal identity or a certain lineage doesn't guarantee that we are those who are going to enter into the Lord's rest. And so the author of Hebrews is very much basically doing what John the Baptist has done, what Moses has done. Where John the Baptist goes and says, don't say we have Abraham as our father. Don't rest in that. You need to embrace the Messiah, Christ himself. You don't embrace Christ, you don't have life, period, end of story. And the vengeance is mine is not a chant that we're going to bring against the prophets of Baal. The warning is it may come against us. We have then the further statement from Deuteronomy 32. The Lord will judge his people. Which means that we ourselves, whether we want to or not, will also bow our knee before God. Either we're going to do it in Christ, in joy, eager for his return, eager to see him and to be reunited with him, truly seeing him face to face, or we're going to bow our knee in absolute humility where the Lord brings his wrath against us. This is why in verse 31, he reminds us and invites us to think about falling into the hands of the living God. If an inferior administration of Moses had a command to execute without mercy, there's a provision that there's not always going to be perfect justice. Hebrews is saying, what are you going to do against a God who peers into the heart and knows why we do what we do, what makes us tick, you're not going to trick him. There's nothing you can do when he comes before you. So this is intended to be very sobering. And he's taking the precedent of Moses, applying it to this context, to this congregation, to us today, inviting us to think again, why do I know that I am saved? How do I know I'm saved? It's not by my works. It's because of the blood of Christ, and that's it. And this is why I wanted to continue on in verses 32 through 39 as I looked at this again. Then in these verses, the author of Hebrews is saying, okay, let's, let's back off a little bit. This is a consequence of where you're going and what can happen. But the author of Hebrews says, but, but what about you? What about you as a congregation? You... You showed, demonstrated truly that you were enlightened, that, that you enjoyed the blessings of Christ. And as he brings about the, the prosecution of what they've done against Christ, he goes on now to talk about who they are. There were those who suffered, literally just general hard sufferings, verse 32. 
publicly shamed. This is basically willingly losing your reputation, willingly slandered. It's a very general statement of, of basically people mocking you, putting you down, making it so you, you just don't really want to show your face in public, if you will. And then he says afflicted. So he's saying it's not just you were shamed, but also you experienced beating consequences for your faith. Verse 33, partnered with those who are facing trouble. So this means you have individuals who end up in prison, uh, as they're in prison, as he goes on to uh, note this, that you visited those in prison, but you're willingly identifying with those who were Christians, which, is con which has a serious consequence. Because you're saying, I'm in line with these people. I believe what they believe. Which means those people who lost their property, ended up in prison, might come against you. And you might experience the same consequence. So the author of Hebrews is saying, but you were willing to do this. And why? Well, basically, they lived out what Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 verse, two, 5, verse 12 where individuals are willing to experience sufferings and persecutions. Why? Because they see the greater glory of the kingdom of God. So this isn't just some masochistic suffering or somebody just wanting to basically have this um, Instagram moment of taking a picture of hashtag suffering or whatever. It's not something calling attention to them. It's honestly something that has come upon them. They, they knew the consequence and they were willing to endure the consequence. And so they were willing to forsake their property, let it go, because why? Well, he tells us why. Because he tells us that they were those, as they <coughs> were conscious of this, were partners with them, as they threw this stuff away, they had a better possession the abiding possession. They were found in Christ as a heavenly people. And that's an important thing to know. They were found in Christ as a heavenly people. And so Hebrews is saying, listen, you had this. It's still there within you in the midst of your suffering and the wilderness turmoil. Don't walk away. Because falling into the hands of this Christ is not where you want to fall in the sight of judgment. You want to see the greater reward that is yours. And the author of Hebrews doesn't just cite Moses in a negative sense and saying, oh, you die without mercy. And by the testimony of two or three witnesses, that's intended to frighten us. It, it is. But he goes on to cite something else in Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 26, 20, where Israel is, is terrified of what's going to happen. And the Lord says, don't worry. I will deliver you. You will suffer. I will come. You will see my deliverance. You will not have a story that ends in Babylon. I will bring you back to the land. Just shut yourselves up. Now, this is basically like, like put yourselves in a fortress. Lock the door. And the fortress is God. He is coming. He's saying, wait upon me. I am your shield and defender. I will deliver you. So he's promising to shepherd them in the midst of Babylon. He's going there with them. He will be with them. But he goes on to also cite the prophet Habakkuk, where Habakkuk ministers to Israel in the threat of the Chaldeans. And one wonders, well, what's, what's our hope? Are we going to survive? Are we going to live? 
But in verse 38, he gives us assurance. The just shall live by faith, saying amen to the promises of God, Genesis 15, 6, Abram. Again, the reminder, the Lord is a shield and defender. But Habakkuk gives a warning. Don't shrink back. Don't say, I'm going to trust in God and I'm going to trust in these things. Because he's saying, the Lord has no pleasure in that individual. And so the, the call, the challenging call, the challenging exhortation is to live in the conviction that our Lord is a shield and defender who really is the one who brings about his redemptive promises because Christ has come. That we are those who know that as we take hold of Christ by faith, we are those who will have our souls preserved, as he tells us in verse 39. Then he's going to go on in chapter 11, giving us further assurance of faith in that precedent. But it's the assurance that this faith isn't just some meaningless thing. It's not, not just a consciousness. It's not just a knowledge. But it's truly reaching into the person of Christ. Reaching into the shield and defender who is the one who resides in the heavenly temple. And so in conclusion then, we ask that question, why is Mount Carmel so significant? The place where I go again is what Hebrews tells us. Remember what he told us in chapter 4? That we can draw near to the throne of grace. We can pray to our God. And he is the one who hears us for the sake of Christ. And as he hears us for the sake of Christ, we know that we draw near. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. He will give us the grace in our time of need. That's why I think it's important. How does Elijah win the battle? By taking up a sword? Getting a better military strategy than the false prophets? He shows up. He prays. And the Lord answers. That's what Hebrews is calling us to cling to. That he's told us we're in a wilderness sojourn. The wilderness sometimes is tough. It's lonely. It's dry. It's full of testing. We, we want to question the Lord. We want to test the Lord. We want to see if he's real. The author of Hebrews is saying he's shown that he's real. Christ has come. Christ is secured. Christ is seated in heaven. Cling to your Savior. When you have your doubts, first come to your Savior. He hears you. But don't shrink back. Because if you shrink back, the consequence is dire. The assurance we have is our life our land, our dwelling is eternally secured in Christ. The beauty is right now. We taste it in the power of the Spirit by faith. Let us not shrink back. Let us truly understand why he calls this precedent to our mind. But let us also be driven to Christ and see the riches of the redemptive promises and our Melchizedekian priest. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. 
If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.